Welcome to the Oddcast, brought to you by the Odyssey NFT Experience, seeking to deliver value to creators, collectors, DeFi natives, and DGENs. Every episode, we will speak with personalities across the space about all things NFT in an effort to celebrate, explore, and educate about the many facets of this incredible creator economy. I'm your host, Flame, and I'm here with a promise to keep it interesting, uplifting, and always odd. Let's get into it. We are here to first and foremost celebrate the artists and innovators from all corners of the space within the Odyssey community and beyond. There will be news, there may be alpha, but there will be nothing that should ever be mistaken for financial advice. Always, always, always DYOR friends. And with that, let's get to our next incredible guest of the Oddcast, Sean Kemp. Sean Kemp is a crypto native and generative artist who bridges the physical and digital art worlds by creating 3D wall sculptures using high powered lasers in addition to generative NFT companion pieces. So glad you can join me for a very uplifting chat with a truly wonderful, wildly creative human being. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sean. First, I was just wondering if you could please introduce yourself and give us a little background on your history in the crypto and digital art space. Sure. My name is Sean Kemp. Um, I am uh, just north of Seattle, Washington uh, in the United States, and uh, I've been involved in crypto since probably early 2012 um, and then digital art, kind of digital art as it intersects with crypto. Um, for probably going on about two years now um, in that space. So kind of the NFT realm. Nice. And uh, I know you have an extensive background in tech. Going all the way back to in high school when you were uh, designing and racing solar cars, can you tell me a little bit about that? That's really cool. Yeah. When I was in high school, I had this unique opportunity. I, it was in, in in Hawaii, state of Hawaii. So, you know, amazing high school systems. Not really. Um probably some of the worst in the country at the time. Um, but they, the Department of Energy in Hawaii had done this program where they sponsored a number of high schools to build solar cars um, as part of the Department of Energy's grant funding that they had received from the federal government. And my high school was one of those that, that did that. So as a high school student, we designed, built, and raced these cars powered entirely by the sun. So we did it locally between all the high schools, and then we won. Uh, and then we took that car to Switzerland and Australia. And then my senior year of high school, um, the car that I helped build and design, we took from California to Delaware. So across the entire United States, um, 3,421 miles on the power of the sun. That's incredible. Did you feel like you've been drawn to tech ever since you started getting involved to that level? I know that you have a pretty storied background when it comes to tech and some of the companies that you've worked for. Yeah, I mean, I've always, even before that, I've been drawn to, to technology. Um, I mean, like when I was in first grade, uh, my grandpa had a VIC-20, Commodore VIC-20, which is like an early, you know, an actual computer. Um, and I loved using that, like writing code out of, the, out of Byte magazine, copying it out, programming it, saving it to the tape drive, um, doing all those types of things. So, that, I mean, I got started super, super early in technology, and it's just been a continuous thing for me throughout my career is how do you use that? How do you think of it as a tool and, and apply it to the things that you're doing? Well, it makes sense. I mean, obviously your work is very tech heavy by nature, just because of creating NFTs and also because you are using a pretty incredible tool and a very interesting medium to create your art. Can you tell us about that? 
Yeah. Yeah. So the, the art I, I do is kind of a fusion of, of real world art. So um, I actually got started in the real world side and then mapped it back to the, the NFT crypto side of things. But the, the actual art that I, that I produce that you can hold in your hand, the physical art form, uh, is created using a, a high powered laser. So cutting through sheets of wood or lately more like mat board, like stuff that you would frame a, a picture with, but think sheets of, of something thick, uh, cutting through that using a high powered laser that's controlled by the computer. So a, a vector shape controls the laser and then the laser cuts it out and you're left with a, a cutout. Think like a little um, kind of, you know, something that's a mesh, if you will. And then I stack those together uh, color them using different colors, and then that creates a three-dimensional wall sculpture uh, that you can put on your wall, and then you can feel the touch. Like it's a, it's a relief. It's a, as if it's been carved from wood or the the material that I'm using there. It really is so cool to see and feel and touch, and you know, as instructed when you receive the art, you know, you've created this this whole experience where it's like make sure to feel it and smell it and touch it. It's not often that you get to experience art in such a tactile and sensory way beyond just looking at it. And also to have that connection to the NFT is just a really special experience. And I know that you've done some other projects where people have been able to receive a physical copy of this digital art, but you've also done some stuff that was service-oriented. What was that project all about? I think it was called Boundary Swirl. Yeah, well, I've done a couple of different different things. Um, so the, the the Boundary Swirl um, one was a was a local project that I did. So not not tied to a platform. So a lot of the work that I've been doing lately has been generative art on that's mintable on FX Hash, and then that generative output is a vector that can then be turned into the physical thing. So it's the instructions for for being able to produce that thing. Um, but I did a I did a just a uh, uh, a local piece at a local brewery um, using the idea of generative. So a self-contained generative script that people could walk into the, the brewery, see, the, see the, the mural that was up on the wall with the missing pieces, scan a QR code, generate a piece while they were sitting there at the table, and then uh, share that for a chance at having that actually produced and, and appear on the mural uh, that's sitting there at the, at the brewery. So kind of that, that idea. And then they could go and claim it. Um, around that thing. So the idea of moving it from just a, a digital activity to something that's in place that you can see and touch and interact with um, within that area. When people get these physical pieces, what's generally the reception? I, I imagine they're pretty stoked. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there's, there's, um, there's kind of two different, I'll call them audiences or, or ways people interact with it. One is people that are much more kind of art focused. They're, they're thinking about something from a traditional art standpoint. They, they've collected art, they've bought paintings, they, you know, they have them displayed in the house and they're, they're purchasing my art from that standpoint. Um, they've seen it, they want to have it there. Um, the, and then the other is people that are more interested in the generative or the NFT side that are getting it that way. They're getting the, the digital and then the physical seems like an interesting offshoot um, of that thing. But the reaction is always the same. Somebody sees it generally on in a digital format and then orders it and then gets it physically. And the response is almost always, wow, this is so different than it looks on screen. Even when I take a picture of it and do three-dimensional or put it on a rotating stand, it just doesn't, you can't 
you can't simulate the real effect of holding something in your hand, the size, the way light shines on it, just the physical aspect of how that relates to the space that it's in. And so almost always the reaction is pictures can't do this justice. Uh, that's the most common thing. So it's, it's the thing I struggle with is how do I, how do I allow people to experience that and understand what it's going to be like when they get it? Uh, so that's, that's usually the experience. What inspired you to use this medium of wood and the laser cutter? You know, it was actually interesting. Um, I mean, I, I used computer controlled milling machines and my, my training was as an industrial designer. So product design, um, even though most of my career has been experiential design um, product, like physical goods was something I was formally trained at in school. Um, so I've, I've used those computer controlled tools for, you know, most of my career, mostly hobby or, you know, friends that, that I know that are in the industry. Um, and so I, I'd used some of this stuff before, like I'd used plotters before I'd used all these things. Um, and about, I guess it was about four or five years ago. Um, I'm a huge Kickstarter. I just, I'm addicted to like ordering stuff off Kickstarter. Uh, probably not as bad now as I used to be, but uh, used to be a, a problem. Um, and there was a, there was an artist a guy named Gabriel Sharma out of the, out of the Bay area um, that was crowd, that was funding a laser to do this type of art. Uh, and I saw what he was doing and I was just, I was just enthralled by it. It was beautiful. His stuff is just absolutely incredible. And I was just enthralled by the, this new, this process of using computers, using vectors, vector software to design something, which I was really good at. I've, I've done that for my, my whole career, plugging that into creating it with a, with a machine that ties into traditional woodworking. So the output is actually something that's almost more craftsman or artisanal than it is produced. Um, and so just that whole fusion, just as soon as I saw his work, I was like, oh my God, I need a laser too. Um, so I followed him and, and many other people in the, in the space. It's kind of, since then it's, it's become a, a medium in its own right. There's, you know, hundreds of people that are doing this. There's whole Facebook groups filled with people that are, that are getting these machines and the machine costs have come down. So, you know, 10 years ago, a laser that could cut through anything um, was tens of thousands of dollars. Um, now you can get a laser like the laser I use, which can do 24 by 36 inches. So fairly large format um, thing. And it can cut through, it could cut through half inch thick wood. So, you know, fairly, fairly flexible in what it can do is a $5,000 investment, which is, you know, I mean, that's, that's an approachable tool for not anyone, but I mean, it puts it into, into the realm of, of somebody who's serious about their hobby or their, their craft. Yeah. I was wondering, I mean, I've seen a photo of you standing next to that machine and I just thought, wow, like, I wonder how could somebody get involved doing that? You know, there had to be some path that led you to that. Yeah. I mean, I'd say when I started three years ago, when I got my first laser and, and started doing the laser side of things, you know, the software was, there wasn't as much software. It was harder to use. I mean, the software that was there was really hard. I mean, it was, it was cumbersome. Um, the, the actual hardware was hard to hook up. Like you had to, you had to know some tech to actually hook it up and get it up and running. Nowadays, I mean, the current laser I had, I mean, I got it, I plugged it in, I plugged the computer into it, I installed the software. I use a software called Lightburn. It's a third-party software. But, and then throw the, the SVG, the vector file up on it, hit start, and it runs. I mean, it's it, there's a little bit more to that, like learning the power and the speed and getting it so it's, you actually have quality cuts, takes some experience. But it's almost 
I mean, just about anybody could jump up and I mean, I could, I could teach someone in a day how to do that, that portion of it pretty easily nowadays. So it, it's become a lot more accessible for people to actually approach. Um, the hardest part, like, is the space. Like, I mean, I had to kick a car out of the, out of the garage to turn it into a workshop because this laser's, it's the size of a car. I mean, it, it's, it takes up a whole car space in the, in the garage. Getting somebody up to speed on how to use the tech aspect. That's really interesting to know that it, it's that accessible. And it's great to hear that it's also financially accessible now, because I know that the digital art movement, you know, this NFT explosion, I think has really opened up some doors for people who weren't really sure about how to express themselves until this came along. And now you have this really wide sweeping generative art movement, the generative art aspect of it, creating inputs and manipulating them. That is a difficult thing to learn and it does require real artistry how has your experience been getting into generative art and finding your artistic path yeah that's that was the that was the part that came after the i learned how to use the machine i learned how to i mean i knew how to draw i knew how to use vector software like illustrator or inkscape so i could draw the things like put it in the machine i could cut the stuff that that was limiting in the fact that i could do one thing i could you know create an image and produce that one image and that was it like that was, and if I wanted to change it, I had to go back and spend hours and hours, you know, changing the thing that I had done. And in the case of the art that I'm doing, we're talking layers. So most of my pieces are 12 layers. So going and changing something actually isn't just tweaking one thing, it's tweaking it 12 different times as it, as it goes down the thing. Um, so that actually was what kind of put me into generative art. So I'd been, I mean, I'd been following um, especially smart contracts. Um, that was something that I was super intrigued by, um, got involved in Ethereum years and years ago because of that particular potential. So when NFTs came, it was, it was kind of just watching the trends that were, that were there. Um, and they were interesting, like they were, they were cool. But when art blocks came around that, that really drew me into it. Um, so they, I mean, I, I knew what generative art was. I'd been doing that years. I mean, even like my first um, job uh, was at Microsoft working on a project called Xbox. Um, and I used Macromedia Flash to generatively create website elements that were completely unique for everyone who visited the website uh, based on inputs like time of day or, or things like that. So I was doing that. I mean, I knew that I had already been playing with that, but never done it as an art form. Um, so when art blocks came around, I was like, oh my God, I love this. And I started collecting. Um, I was like, this is great. You know, I love, I love this aspect of it. And it wasn't too long before I was like, this would be really interesting combined with what I'm doing. Um, how can I, and so I started exploring and learning. I mean, I'm technically proficient, but I am not a coder in any way, shape or form. Uh, I mean, my, my the companies I've founded and, and helped lead, I mean, the tech teams kept me away from the code uh, as much as possible because I know enough to be dangerous. That's, that's about my skill level. Um, and so, so I, I actually got really intrigued, you know, could I actually brush up my skills enough to be able to write code to create the designs that I was doing by hand? And so I started experimenting with that. So while I was collecting and, and becoming a consumer of generative art, I was also learning to see whether I could actually do that. And I could, I mean, it turns out I actually wasn't, it wasn't as hard as it seems, um, uh, the stuff that, I mean, some of the stuff that's out there is incredible. Like, I don't want to diminish the, the, the stuff that is out there. The, the artists that I admire, I couldn't even touch the, the stuff that they're doing from a technical standpoint. But I, but I could learn enough 
to do what I needed to do um, around it. And so that's kind of the path that I've been on is, is learning how to use the generative art tool sets that are out there, find the right pieces that, that work with what I need, and then be able to adapt that so that I can take a design, a vision that I have that I've sketched out, turn that into code, which then generates hundreds of outputs, um, which then opened up a whole new world for me in terms of what the art looked like, because each one becomes completely unique and tied to something that somebody has created digitally that they then own and can control the output of production of that, that in piece, the, the physical piece that's, that's there. Um, so that's the point that I'm, I'm exploring a lot of. And, and actually the difference between generative artist and producer is really fascinating. Like, I think that's something I'm, I'm watching closely is as people are creating art, who is producing it? And what are the oppor new opportunities for diversified or decentralized marketplaces that allow for artist and producer to work together? Um, we saw that in the past. I mean, you've always had that in the past with an artist and then a printer who would print the, the work. But more of a service provider as opposed to part of an ecosystem. So that's something I've, I've been thinking a lot about is what does that look like? Like how, how can other people laser cut the things that I've designed, produce them, package them because they own it or because they're working with somebody who owns that NFT that relates to it? Yeah, there's a lot to explore. There are many things about the space that are exciting. You have so many different ways to access art now, so many different ways to figure out what you can do with the art you own. There's just so many business models, I think, that are, are just ready to be explored. You know, you hear this in the space a lot. It's a great time to be alive. It is because we're on this exponential bell curve of innovation. You know, there's just new stuff happening all the time. And it's all a direct result of people being able to make their own rules, make their own schedule and do exactly what they want. And if I'm not mistaken, that's one of the things that inspired you to plug into the space was no more crazy work weeks. I mean, you talk about using Macromedia Flash at Xbox. I can only imagine in addition to the other duties that you had there, like what kind of hours you had. Yeah, I mean, that was the video game industry. It was 80 hours a week were, were the norm um, of that time period. But yeah, it does. It offers it offers freedom to 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 be part of a new kind of economic paradigm, if you will, um, within that, which which is fascinating um, and and an interesting exercise in you know being able to as an artist to be able to kind of hold your art and your craft and have a new marketplace that isn't gatekept as well um, within that space. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not, I haven't, I haven't been an artist for very long, but uh, you know, I've been around long enough to know that, that there are gatekeepers, that that industry is very tightly controlled. And no matter how good you are as, as an artist, you know, whether you get bought or seen is controlled by a few, um, you know, the gallery owners, the curators, the, the museums, and you know, it's, it's a, it's an industry that is tightly held and tightly defines what is valuable and not valuable, um, based on arbitrary signals. I mean, not, not necessarily on merit or, or anything else, um, that's there. And so I think, I think we see that a lot in, in web three is it, it's opening it up where your involvement in community, the value that you bring to that, that community is often rewarded and, and commiserate with, with those types of things. Um, so you're seeing a lot of new artists coming in 
um, were not new artists. They're, they're, they're people who've been artistic for long periods of time, but are just beginning to tap into new ways of selling or distributing their artworks within a, a new model that doesn't have the traditional gatekeepers. Yeah, I've seen some pretty explosive success stories along those lines. And I do think to some extent, some of the people that we're familiar with made a splash at a really opportune time. They were in essence early to this whole arena. And I think you were one of those people as well. You know, I remember hearing about your work last year and I remember there being an NFT component to whatever the project was and seeing the actual physical work online, which is brilliant, you know, like that you actually get to see that tangible connection to the digital. And I just thought, wow, you know, that's going to turn a lot of heads. And I'm glad that he has found this arena before other people who are thinking about doing the same thing. I'm glad you got here first, you know, because I think it is beneficial. I think the art speaks for itself. And I think you and others would probably be doing great regardless of the timing. But how do you feel that has impacted your uh, ability to do this to the level that you want to? Yeah, I mean, I think timing is with anything. I mean, it's, you know, 90% luck and 10% <laughs> what, what you bring to it, you know, whether you were ready. So I think there's, you know, being willing to and having the privilege and the opportunities to jump in to spaces early um, or at the right times. Um, I, I mean, I, I grew up in Hawaii and I grew up surfing, so I equate everything to surfing. But it, it is kind of like that, you know, when you're sitting out there waiting for waves to come, are you in the right spot at the right time for the perfect swell? Um, you know, when it comes in, are there other people there in the lineup who swims for it, who paddles, and then who gets to catch that wave? And are there other people in that, in that thing? Um, and this space is, is, is like that right now. The, the, the people that were in early, they kind of, I'll call it cracked the code or became part of the, the effort, you know, realized the acts, the aspect of community was a big part of it, realized that the art being able to translate what they were doing into that new medium in a way that actually worked, um, have a huge advantage. Um, and they also have a huge responsibility, I think, too, to define what it is and how to keep it open, how to encourage and, and lift up new people as they as they get into it, especially people that don't that don't normally have privilege or they don't normally have access to those things. How do we keep it inclusive? Um, how do we keep it so that it, it actually does fulfill the promise of a of a decentralized um type of, of, of system that's there. So, but I think it's huge. Like, I mean, if, you know, if I was like, I look at now, you know, some of the people that are launching new stuff, it's hard. Um, and, and, and the opportunity that was there at the time was there was huge FOMO. People were dumping massive amounts of money into stuff. Um, and it was really easy. I mean, <laughs> in hindsight, I look back and I'm like, wow, I sold 640 editions of a mint on FX hash and like, less than an hour or something on one of my projects and and at the time i was feeling like eh, that was kind of like i wish it had gone faster like I, I haven't made it yet um but if you look at the at the momentum now you know that's that's a huge addition size and most of them are not minting out very fast um even top tier even top top tier artists that are in huge demand um i mean there's a couple that could i mean like there are definitely a couple of artists that if they dropped it would be gone in a couple seconds but in general, that that momentum, that wave isn't there right now. Um, and so it's harder um, to get started. Um, and so there's there's just that, op like the opportunities that were there, how do we continue that forward? 
um, how does the space mature um, and become something that's long-term sustainable? The, the, the momentum that was there for, the, for early artists like myself was never sustainable forever. Um, and so how do we translate that and, and use that to build something that, that has lasting value, which, which is why I think like I'm, why I like the physical aspects of what, what, what I'm doing and what others are doing or like what Tinder's bringing to, um, to the FX hash stuff with printing or even Zancan with his, with his plots and, and everything there, it's creating value beyond just a digital thing that is an economic trading token where you, you know, you buy it for 10, it becomes a hundred, it becomes a thousand, it becomes 10. I mean, that's, that's, that's a pyramid scheme. Uh, that's, you know, so how do you provide additional value on top of it? I hear what you're saying 100%, you know, in terms of opportunity and in terms of making sure that artists are still able to create and earn essentially, because I mean, as much as we'd all love to do, we love to do it for free. That's just not economically sound in terms of self-maintenance. So yeah, that's a great thought. Like how do we make this sustainable and make it valuable beyond JPEGs on a computer screen, which I'm not discounting as being incredible. Like, but at the same time, just sitting on a web page isn't the level of art that I'm trying to experience. So Am I going to print them on canvas? Am I going to get a digital frame? You know, in the case of the NFT that I was able to get from you, I have this really cool piece and it keeps me connected to the NFT. I think of both versions whenever I see one, I think of the other and it just feels very connected, you know? And I also love the aspect of artists having more access to the people that enjoy their work. You know, this is a whole new paradigm shift as well. How do you feel about that? I mean, I, I think that's that's how, that's how I view it too. Um, both both new bringing new art collectors in um, through a different lens, um, I think, is huge, um, and then expanding traditional art into new markets or or new ways of, of being able to have, expand the the market for those particular things. So a lot of art, you know, would be would be in a gallery and would be place based, and so it's funny. I, I have not yet shipped a single physical piece to anyone who lives in the state of Washington, which is my local zone. <laughs> in the past, half, at least half of my pieces were to people in the, in my town. Um, so, you know, the, the zone has become, has become huge in that. Um, but I think it also opens up like for me, like traditionally the, the, the wood pieces I was doing before they were generatively minted. Um, you know, they were exhibited at, at galleries and pubs and, and online and, and people bought them and, and then it was sent to them. Um, and they paid for it directly. They saw a piece, they, they valued it, they paid that amount of value and they got the thing. That was the transaction. Um, generative stuff has opened up a whole new way of doing that. Um, and I think a lot of the generative artists are, are doing that, which is so like my, I mean, my, my, my pricing on my things have basically been twofold. One is I'll do a generative mint and I generally have them pretty low priced because I like the idea of having them accessible um, to more people. So not having them be a, a really high thing to generate the new outputs. And then, and then I usually attach a certain number of giveaways of physicals, um, which is usually calculated based on if this whole thing mints out, how much, how much would come from that? How much would these pieces normally be? And how many pieces would that equate to? So, for example, if I did, you know, a thousand mint at one Tez, 
um, and Tez was $2, let's say, it's not right now, but let's just say it is, um, you know, that would be $2,000. And so that would equate to, if it was a small piece that was $200, that would equate to 10 pieces. So I can, I can basically attach 10 physical pieces to a mint and say, when you mint it, you have a chance at one of these 10. Um, so people for $2 equivalent get a chance at a physical piece, um, which is a totally new market paradigm. Um, you, you know, not only do you get the NFT that you paid for, but you have a chance at getting the physical thing. And if you don't get the physical thing, you could still buy that physical thing as part of it, but it opens up a whole new paradigm. So now no longer do people have to pay $200 for that piece just directly. They can pay $2 for a chance at it or mint a whole bunch and have more of a chance at, at those things. So it, it opens up all these new interesting market opportunities for people to enter as collectors with a chance at getting those physical pieces. Yeah, that's really wonderful. I mean, I've seen top tier artists create opportunities for people that would otherwise be impossible. It's great that artists and platforms are all thinking carefully about how to make opportunity for people who want to get involved in experiencing art more readily accessible. You've got all these neat and novel ways to collect people's art and the artists can still reward the collectors however they want. And I'm, I'm really appreciative of the fact that you are uh, so cognizant of that and employing that in your releases. What artists in the space are you interested in like that inspire you? And maybe not necessarily even the space, but just in general, what other art informs and inspires your work? I mean, I would say in, in the generative art space, um, the people that are doing more technical um, aspects, te technical and or, and or artistic, uh, really inspire me. So, I mean, like, you know, Zancan's code is just like, oh my God, like, wow. Um, you know, Peter Pisma's um, stuff with ray tracing and ray marching is just blows my mind. I have no idea. Uh, but but I learned it inspires me around that. Um, you know, the work that like Anna Lucia does and, and her pieces with color um, really inspire a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that, that I do. Um, so all the general, I mean, they all inspire me in different, different ways, especially ones who are thinking creatively, both about the art and the approach to it, the community and their approach to cultivating community within, within artists and sharing techniques, but also within collectors and you know, kind of elevating the, the medium um, and finding long-term authentic aspects to, to that really inspire me a lot. And then on the kind of on the, on the, on the, on my particular art side of things, um, nature. Like I find a lot of inspiration in natural patterns. Um, and and I've, lately I've been finding a lot more inspiration in, in uh, kind of what, what's called sacred geometry. So, you know, stuff from, from you know, Islamic culture or, or different places where they, where they used geometry um, as part of, of art uh, kind of things. So ceramic patterns and sculptures. Um, I've, been, I've been digging a lot more into some of that stuff. And that really inspires a lot of the, the newer work that I'm looking at is how do you use some of that? How do you translate that? Which are mathematically based shapes. How do you translate that into something that's generative? So it opens up the opportunity to have you know, hundreds of different variations of it and then use that to, to go three-dimensional. With, within the stuff that I'm doing so that I can actually hold it and feel it and touch it uh, within that, that area. So that, that's kind of what, what inspires me around a lot of those things. And then the, the materials I use um, and my access to the materials <laughs> inspire or de 
disinspire. I don't know if there's a word around that, but um, you know, lately I've been. It's been hard to get wood. It's been hard to get the shellac. I, I I make a custom tinted shellac so I can get just the colors and control that stuff. Supply chains are. I mean, they're they're drying up. Like I can't get wood. Like I have not. It's been six months now since I've been able to reliably get good wood uh, that I like the outputs of. Um, so, so I'm, you know, I'm experimenting with new materials, new ways of doing things um, that are more sustainable and more approachable to by other people. Because I'm always thinking about how can what I'm doing be something that others can take. Like I've taught a number of people how to do this with their lasers. Like there's been a number of people who've DM'd me and, and actually asked. And I've shared the formulas for all my shellacs, and I've shared how to actually write the code, and I've shared the, the templates behind the code that I'm doing so others can can take that. Um, so I'm always thinking a lot about that. Like, how do I make what I'm doing something that more people can do? So selfishly, I can learn from them. Like the more people that are doing this, the more, the more I will not have to do the, the hard thing. Somebody else can do that and share it back with me. Well, I think that's a great way to look at it because some people would say, well, I don't want to teach other people how to do what I do because then I'm just going to have all these copycats trying to make my stuff. But it's so counterintuitive to innovation and growth, that selfish, fearful attitude. And I think the most successful people in the space recognize exactly what you're saying. And we've seen a breakaway from this self-interested idea that we make it, it's our process, we keep it to ourselves. And if you can figure out how to do it, fine, but I'm not letting you in on my, on my mystery. I think that's a really cool attitude and I totally agree. You know, the more that we share with each other, I think the more we're able to learn and grow because you never know what's possible until you allow somebody to look at your stuff through their lens and see how they interpret it. It's like the telephone game, but in a good way. <laughs> well, it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's actually a theory called the theory of abundance, um, which is around that. Like when something becomes ubiquitous when it becomes used or or held by everyone the value actually far exceeds the scarcity that it can have um, if it's just held scarce um, and so i believe a lot in that like the more the the more something actually takes on a life of its own the more it becomes ubiquitous across the space the more it actually just increases the tide for everyone uh, that's out there and and i think that's what we've seen with nft as a, a, in the art space the more it becomes ubiquitous, the more people who own an, an NFT that is something that they value and appreciate, the more other people will want to do that. And then the more it just becomes the thing that everybody does and has. Uh, and there's so many, I mean, throughout history, there's so many of those things. Like that's the tipping point on industries is when it becomes, when everyone has a car, everyone needs and will get a car. Well, now I think maybe in the generative space, that might be Dolly and Midjourney. Everybody has access to at least a machine that they can put inputs into and play with the outcomes. Where I think there's a major distinction, though, is people who are creating generative art are writing code, they are manipulating inputs, and they are having to have some level of technological understanding of whatever it is that they're using to create that art. So I don't think anybody that's creating digital art needs to feel threatened, but I do think that people who are collecting it need to start being a little more discerning about how it's created, which is a great thing. It made me realize, well, now I get to 
be more inquisitive about the art that I collect. And and what's the what's the tool like? What's a tool and what's creativity? Um, and 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 that and how does that change over time? Um, and and art has just done. I mean, it's changed over time. You know, it used to be there used to be a time period where the ability to render something in realistic 3D detail as a painter was unique. Like that was a, you know, it would take you a lifetime to master that, that skill. I mean, high school kids can render three. I mean, the techniques are all there. They're known. They can be taught in a matter of hours to someone. Um, and and I, I view a lot of that as the same thing. Like the, the tools are changing and evolving and becoming different. The creativity, the thing that you're, how you wield those things is the thing that sets it apart. Um, and then, and then it will change what people desire, what they want, what's unique, what's, what sparks. I, I think of it as joy and delight. Like what sparks joy and delight changes over time as things become novel or not novel. Um, and I, I like a lot, like AI will, will change a lot of that. Like the ability to have lots more things to choose from will happen. Some of that means that some stuff is no longer novel and new. You look at it and you're like, yeah, I like it, but I liked a thousand other things that look just like it. It doesn't, it's not something you would want to have anymore because it's just the same as everything else. Um, And so what, what does that do to to create something new and and novel um, around those, those types of things? But, but it will, it'll disrupt, you know, people that rely on the skills that they have to do something like the people who are, who are making a living with skill-based activities where those things take over the skills that could, that will have an effect. I mean, that, that definitely will have an effect. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting how the innovation informs the art, but how it's also at the same time competing with it a little bit. However, I think that's what makes this stuff amazing. And it's to your point when you can take familiar objects, you know, whether they're in the real world or in the art world or, familiar tech, and you can still produce something that slaps people in the face and makes them recognize it doesn't matter who else has used these tools. Clearly, the way I use them makes this piece of art special. Yeah, and it lets people who are not traditional visual artists or, you know, in, in the visual space, being able to art, communicate visually, um, explore that and become that. Um, like I have a friend who is a pretty well-known author um, and he's super excited for, especially like the AI art stuff, because it allows him as a, as a, as somebody who, who crafts words um, and worlds from words, but not visually um, to be able to take those words and paint with them. Like he can now get it. Like I got him into mid journey and, and Dolly and, He's just, I mean, he's, but the, the, the outputs are incredible. And so he's just using his craft that normally would, would be on a printed page now has a visual aspect that he can paint with words and that, that does it. And same with like generative art, you know, people who were mostly like code and or logic type of stuff are now painting, they're creating visually, visually beautiful stuff as coders um i mean some some of the generative artists are both like they're they're both you know they have a an art background and and a coding but a lot of them you know we're just developers not just developers but you know we're 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 not really consider they didn't consider themselves artists they didn't never had that output but now they're able to use those tools 
to create something that is what they had in their heart. And now other people can see that. Do you have any advice for people who are looking to get into the space? Um, community. Uh, I mean, that's, that is the, the key. I mean, I guess there's two things. One is the, become part of the community, especially in, in Web3. The community is the secret special sauce. Um, and being part of it, being authentic there, whether you're anonymous or not, whether you're, you know, you're known who you are, like I'm known, like I'm fully doxxed, everybody knows me, they can look me up on LinkedIn or not, but be authentic and be there as part of the community. Like if you, if you aren't comfortable doing that, it's going to be really hard to, to be part of, of those things. It's going to be hard to make, to sell anything or to, to put anything out there that anybody wants. Um, that's, that's number one. Um, and then number two is don't expect to get rich quick. Like this, this isn't a, an arena where you're going to become a multi-billionaire overnight um, or find something that, that, that does those types of things. Um, it's, entering it with those kind of expectations is inauthentic and it's, and it's counter to the community and, and actually helping and being part of something that lifts everyone up um, because that is just greedy. <laughs> and so those are things I see, like I see people getting really frustrated when they come in and their piece didn't sell for $50,000. Like I had a photographer that I was helping you with and he was just like, you know, he wanted to price it. He sells his photos for like $250 in galleries. He's pretty well known. I mean, he's not really well, but he's, you know, he can sell, like he makes a living as a professional photographer, but they're like 250, 500, maybe a thousand at, at the most. And he was thinking he was going to sell his photos as NFTs for 50 grand. Um, so that mindset of it's the same value. Um, how do you how do you come into it with it as a sustainable long term practice? Not a get rich quick. I'm in and out as fast as I can, and I'm gonna I'm taking all my money off the table. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I think a lot of people's success in this space is based on the relationships that they've built, based on the audience that they've built, based on their humility, based on their kindness. I mean, that's why I love this space so much because so much of it is thriving on good, healthy energy and good, healthy communication. I mean, there's plenty of stuff in the space that I could do without, but that's everywhere. I think it's a really incredible time for artists. And I'm really happy for the people that make their way to the space because I can only imagine you know, what's waiting for the world as soon as they get the opportunity to show it. I mean, this is still super early days and with that comes all kinds of both opportunities and, and risks around it. Um, and, and those risks could be, you know, direct financial risks, but they're also reputational risks. Um, like I did a project a couple weeks ago, um, with a friend of mine, um, and it was for a charity. So he's a, a famous celebrity. Um, and we did a project for, for a, um, big charity event and it was not well received. Um, because it was NFT. And so it's, it's still early day. Like by knowledge, I mean like the community that we were, you know, it was, it was for raising money for a really good cause and all of it. I mean, nobody was getting rich off of it. <laughs> like that was the whole thing, but it was designed for people who were not yet familiar with the space of NFT or web three or, or crypto. Um, I mean, not that, I mean, I mean, I mean, everybody has heard of it, but they were not yet in the, in the space. And the majority of the reaction was very negative. It was actually very much uh, like, oh, I can't believe you're having us do this thing or promoting this thing that's evil is kind of the way a lot of people 
phrased it. And so, and that's because it's early. Like the the stuff we were doing was authentic and grounded in community and, and part of a chain that was environmentally friendly and all of these things, I mean, it had all of this stuff, but yet people's perceptions are, what is this? It's new, it's scary, stay away from it. Um, and so understanding that is important too. Like that will happen. Um, and it was discouraging. Like I knew it going in, and it was still discouraging. Like to have the project, and the project actually got closed down within a day um, on that side because the charity just figured it was too big of a risk um, because there was a community <laughs> and they didn't like it. And there were really, really loud people. They were, they were bad mouthing a lot of people around. They were interested in it. Um, and so they took, they took it down just because that community wasn't ready for it yet. But that's, you got to be ready for those things as a creator entering the, the, the ecosystem. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, being early, I think it really is important to have people in the space that understand that. And it's important to have people in, in the space that can be patient with that, not be defensive and, you know, keep the door open for people who are curious because that's just the way of adoption. You know, it's going to take time. But I am, I'm glad you're here early. I'm glad I'm here early. I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with me today, Sean, and all the amazing art that you do. And just this awesome service oriented attitude and, and all the sharing that you do as well. I think that's a huge boon to the space in general, and I can't wait to see what's next. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been, this has been fun and, and it's neat to be part of the community with you and, and everyone else. My pleasure. So awesome getting to speak with Sean Kemp. So much of his incredible work can be found online, especially at fxhash.com. And you can also find other relevant links in the podcast description. Be sure to take a look at all he's done and be on the lookout for all the amazing stuff he creates next. We have another great guest lined up for our next episode. Please don't miss it. You'll be able to find it along with all other episodes wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you for continuing to support Odyssey, art, and innovation. See you soon.